instead of trying to repay you, I'm learning to simply obey you by giving up my life to you for all that you've given to me. I ask you how many times will you pick me up when I keep on letting you down? And each time I will fall short of your glory, how far will forgiveness abound? And you answer, my child, I love you. And as long as you're seeking my face, you'll walk in the path of my daily sufficient grace. Let's go ahead and uh, take your Bibles, turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're still in our series in Ecclesiastes and making our way through there. And we're going to kind of focus our attention on a passage there in chapter 9 tonight. As you're turning there, I do want to remind you, don't forget about <clears throat> our uh, new ministry, Lifted Up. It'll be, uh, we'll have our first session this coming Saturday at 6.30 till about 8 o'clock. It might end a little earlier. We're not sure yet, but between 6.30 and 8, and that'll be our first session. And again, it's uh, uh, Lifted Up Ministries. It's uh, a communication development series is what it is. And our goal, of course, is to help folks to become uh, more effective and efficient at communicating. And um, whether you're obviously writing a resume, uh, interviewing for a job, as I said, meeting with a client or addressing a group or meeting someone in, for the first time, effective communication skills are very, very important. And as believers, we ought to be as effective in communicating as anybody ought to be. And uh, sadly enough, it seems to me in the day and age in which we live, so many people are so confined and consumed with their phones and social media and sometimes behind a screen that they really have very poor uh, communication skills. And they don't represent well. They don't represent themselves well. They don't represent even the Lord Jesus Christ, because if we don't represent, our, represent ourselves well in the sense of presenting ourselves before people properly, uh, it's going to reflect poorly on the Savior. And so if we're going to be effective soul winners, if we're going to be effective teachers and workers in the ministry, if we're going to be effective in our jobs uh, and uh, in corporate America even, if we're going to be effective in any area or arena in the world in which we live, we need to be able to communicate effectively, both uh, verbally, uh, you know, through writing, all kind of different skills. And so anyway, uh, Lifted Up Ministries is really going to be a, a ministry to try to help people and encourage people and ultimately affect people in a very positive way in the area of communication. And of course, <clears throat> this all kind of came out of uh, the idea that we wanted to have a big production and we got thinking about, well, how can we prepare people for something like that? But in the process of doing that, we realized, wait, there's so much more beyond that. That's, that's just a means by which someone could express themselves. Someone could take the, the kind of communication tools that they could learn for life and apply them, to, uh, apply them directly on, say, the stage and before people. So the, really the goal isn't to provide a, uh, you know, a theatrical troupe. That's not the goal. The goal is to prepare you and me and everyone else that names the name of Christ uh, for, uh, to prepare us to communicate properly with the world in which we live. Boy, Jesus Christ was a, a very effective communicator. 
And uh, he was able to reach out to people and speak to them in a way, whether it was using parables or uh, stories or whatever it might be. And uh, boy, we need to be effective at that. Um, have you ever talked, do you talk to young people today or so, children and they won't look you in the eye? You know, that's a poor communication. That's, that's not learning how, they, you're not communicating well if you won't look somebody in the face. Uh, you know, you put your head down, yeah, okay, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing more of those kind of things happening. And, and uh, whether it's a job interview or uh, just meeting someone for the first time, it's important that you uh, can communicate effectively. And so we're going to be trying to share and teach, should I say, teach some of those kind of skills. Principles given, we're going to give principles that will help you to be a better communicator and uh, in so many arenas. And uh, we're, we're going to teach people how to do job interviews in the end. We're going to show people how to do a lot of those things so that they can ultimately really represent the Lord Jesus Christ effectively. And uh, I don't know about you, but I think that every Christian young man, a Christian young lady that sits in front of a, uh, somebody and tries to apply for a job ought to be impressive. I'm, I'm not joking. I think that, they, I think that the, the person take, doing the interview ought to say, no, there's something unique about that one. There's something different about that young lady, that young guy. Man, they're sharp. They're sharp. I don't know that that's the case. Just because we're Christian today, I'm not so sure that we know how to communicate effectively. And I do think that that's important. And so we're going to be doing that. This isn't a soul-winning class. That's not what it is. So don't get the idea because it's lifted up. We want to do all to lift up the Lord. There's no doubt about that. We want him to be lifted up, put him on center stage, no doubt about it. And that's what we want to do. But uh, we want to do that by being effective communicators on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, Saturday at, eight, at 6 o'clock, 6.30, excuse me, Saturday, 6.30, we'll have our first session, and uh, it'll be practical. We're not just going to give you information. We're going to, we're going to share a few things that I hopefully will uh, even encourage you along the way and uh, put you on the road to being a more effective communicator. And that's what we want to do starting this coming Saturday. And so if you're interested, by all means, show up. And uh, I know everybody's schedules are busy, and you may or may not be able to attend, but we'd certainly love you to give it a shot, take a look at it, and find out what's going on. And uh, if you're interested in the least of being a part of, say, a program like we're talking about having in April, uh, you know, it's going to be something that, you know, would probably prepare you and ready you in a, a major way. And I think you'd find it to be very helpful as you move forward. Uh, nonetheless, um, let's go ahead and uh, look at chapter 9 now. Chapter 9, I want to, um, again, we're dealing in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think it's important to realize that, that um, you know, as we've said before, Solomon, of course, was uh, just a, a man who enjoyed every pleasure life had to offer. And he was seeking something. He was looking for the answers to life, wasn't he? And, you know, that's not uncommon. We're all, you know, many people from the time we're younger, we're looking for the reason or purpose for living and what the purpose of life is. And yet the Bible outlines for us all of that. We're so fortunate that God is gracious to give us the Word of God that does indeed uh, outline what our purpose is. And uh, unfortunately, so many of us miss our purpose because we fail to really dig into the Word of God. And so throughout the, 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 the course of life, many people squander uh, the time that they have. Then they simply meander about aimlessly in life, hoping that one day when they lay on their deathbed, they'll be able to look back and say, Man, I accomplished something. But listen, you need to understand what it is God designed you to do first. I don't know about you, but a hammer does a better job at, at punching a nail into wood than it does screwing a screw into wood. And unfortunately, many times in our lives, we're trying to be uh, screwdrivers when we ought to be a hammer. Or we're trying to be a hammer when we should be a screwdriver. 
And unfortunately, the world today has twisted things and has said, this is what your real purpose is as a woman. This is what your real purpose is as a man. This is what your purpose is as a father. This is what your purpose is as a, a, a mother. This is what your purpose is as a young man or young lady. All of the things. And they try to redefine what God's purpose for us is. I'm telling you, God has the right one. He knows exactly what we ought to be, how we ought to do it. And, and unfortunately, unless we get back to God's design, what he has for us, we're going we're gonna to really struggle, okay? And so in this case, we have Solomon who's searching and he's looking for answers. And he has access to everything that a man could ever desire. And yet every time he, every time he turns around, he comes up empty. There's vanity of vanities, he says. It's just emptiness. And he's looking and searching and he's realizing that so many of the things that he's searching for purpose and searching for reasons for living, he's not finding the answers, the real joy that he seeks and the real purpose that he wants. He's not finding in the things that he is acquiring or getting. And so whether he's, uh, you know, he's, he's healthy, he's wealthy, he's wise, he's all of those things and yet he's missing out. He's not quite getting it. And uh, we had to remember this is the viewpoint of a man. In the passage today, chapter 9, he's going to be really cynical. Um, he's going to share some things with us, and it's going to sound pretty rough in one respect. And I want to note those real quickly, and then we're going to go to the passage that I want to focus our attention on. But look at verse 2. Again, you talk about cynical. In chapter 9, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes, he makes this statement. He says, All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not, as is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cynical. Doesn't matter whether you live good, whether you live bad. Doesn't matter whether you're right, whether you're wrong in the sense. Doesn't matter whether you, you go to church or whether you don't go to church. It doesn't really matter. In the end, it's all the same for everybody. That's pretty cynical. Now remember, this is being written from the perspective of a man. This is a man writing. It's important to remember that. Verses 11 and 12, notice what he says. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to, the, to men of understanding, nor yet favor of men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. <laughs> now I don't know about you, but... It seems to me when I get out on a field and, it, and we're going to go ahead and sprint and race, uh, the swift always win. Doesn't seem like the fastest guy or gal wins. You know what I mean? I, and yet in this particular case, he's been pretty cynical. He's going, you know what? Chance happens to everyone. You would be the fastest guy and you're still going to maybe, not, you may, you're not going to win the race. You'd be the strongest guy and you're still not going to win the, the contest. But you know what? In reality, for the most part, it's true that the swift win, win the race. That the battle is to the strong. Things like that. You get where I'm going with this? And yet in his case, all he can see is, he, all he sees is in this passage is, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And then he goes in verse 12. For man also knoweth not his time. And he's talking about the time he has on earth. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net. Now, unless you like fish, I would guess you'd call that evil net. But in this case, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just say, but, but the fish, they don't even realize it. They're swimming around having a good time. And next thing you know, it's like, ah! They're in a net, you know? It's over, right? 
So, so, and, and he says, For man also knows not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare. So are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. Man, evil comes upon us like that. Death comes upon us like that. I mean, it just sounds so cynical, so just negative, negative, negative. And then we arrive at our passage where I want to really focus our attention tonight. We're going to see now as he sets the stage for all of this. He goes on and he talks about now in verse 14. And that's where I really want to pick up. There was a little city and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. <laughs> wow. Um, I want to look at this passage a little bit, but boy, once again, we're seeing some things taking place here. And I want you to know that from a man's perspective, this could be certainly the case. And we're not so sure that this didn't legitimately happen, that it wasn't something that really happened. It may have been an actual, um, maybe a, a real city that existed and potentially a real city that was delivered by the wisdom of a poor man. But what we see is that even the writer here of Ecclesiastes is still being very cynical and basically saying that that poor guy is never going to be remembered, even though he saved the city, eh, he's forgotten. I just want you to know that that is, once again, the perspective of a man looking at life as we see it without God. But when you look at God and you look at the believer's life, I can guarantee you this, before it ends and before we're done with our lesson here tonight or our message, we're going to realize nothing we do is really forgotten. We need to remember that. And so I want to take a few minutes and consider this passage. Now, some have suggested that the little city may be Athens, delivered in B.C. 480 from the host of Xerxes through the wisdom of a fellow by the name of, I'm really having a hard time with his name, Themistocles. Now, I may have pronounced that incorrectly. But apparently there was a situation just like that. This, this Themistocle, he was a politician and he was a general. And he encouraged uh, them, Athens, to have a very strong navy, which ultimately thwarted the Persian army and the invasion. Now, ten years after that, he'd be driven from Athens and he would die in misery. Here he was, the great, uh, the great uh, mind, if you will, of them, uh, of, of Athens at that time, coming to their aid, telling them, boy, we need to build our military, we need to do this, we need to do that. And because of his wisdom, they were spared. But ten years later, he's on the outs, and he ultimately dies in misery. Others have suggested that it could allude to a place called Dora. It was near Mount Carmel, which was besieged in B.C. 218, by Antiochus the Great. Again, some say that, well, it's just an allegory. It, it doesn't refer to any literal city. It's just an allegory. Uh, you know what? I don't really know. You know, I, I can't say for sure. There are a lot smarter people than me that have tried to figure that out. <clears throat> but what I do know is, is it teaches us some lessons. We can learn a few lessons. And um, that's what I want to focus on. Just make a couple statements about this particular uh, 
situation and see what we can't learn and how we can apply it to us as believers today. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time that we have together tonight. Thank you for these that have gathered. And we are a grateful people for your word and for just all that you do for us. Now, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through the word of God. May we leave here, Father, different for having come. Be glorified, we pray, Lord. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, I want you to notice uh, in verse 14, there was a little city and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. First of all, what I see here, if I had to apply it to the Christian life, I'd have to say this, the odds are against us. The odds are against us. In this particular case, we said there's a little city. A great king came against it. Now, when it's talking about a great king, it's talking about someone that has authority over a great, a great uh, nation, if you will, or a great city, a great king, a known king, a, a very popular king, a king that has many assets at his disposal. And in this case, this great king besieged the city. <clears throat> he came upon the city with all his fury, with all his military prowess, with all his military power. The Bible, uh, the, the Bible tells us that this great king built bulwarks against it, against this little city. Bulwarks were embankments or mounds raised high enough to overcome the wall of the town or to somehow give the advantage to the enemy. Uh, sometimes wooden towers would be used as well. So say that you had a wall here and you would build mounds of dirt and continue to build it up and build it up and build it up till ultimately you could go over top the city wall. Or would give you an advantage of sorts to be able to shoot down upon the city versus them coming shooting down upon you. He built bulwarks against this little city. This great king, this great king comes upon it, besieges it, and builds bulwarks against it. May I say that we have a relentless enemy as well? We really do. And you know what? The odds really, if you look at it from a worldly perspective, would seem to be so against us. You know, January 21st, 2011, a woman on her way to her room at the area, that's a casino, decided to plunk six bucks into a megabucks machine, and she hit for $12.7 million, a, seven, a $12.7 million jackpot. Six bucks, just dropped it in there. Boom. <clears throat> she thought that the machine had malfunctioned until her niece pointed out that, no, it was real, she was really the winner. She thought it was just crazy. How did this happen? I mean, what's the likelihood? What are the odds that I just walk by a machine, dump six bucks in it, and bam, 12.7 mil? On February the 19th, 2012, Alexander uh, Degenhart, a 26-year-old U.S. Marine, won nearly 2.9 million on the Money Vault uh, Millionaire's seven slot at the Bellagio. Bellagio. Denhart had been in training at the Nellis Air Force Base And he went to the casino with some buddies on their last night there in the city. He slipped in $100 and said he'd never won more than 200 bucks before. But this time he hit for the biggest Las Vegas jackpot from a Bally Technologies game in recent memory. $2,882,808.32. Do you realize that there are 460 commercial casinos in the United States? And the revenues of those casinos are more than $40 billion, $40 billion. 
and the taxes that are paid in taxes that are paid by those uh, you know as a result of these you know the revenues are nine billion dollars just the taxes that are paid as a result of the winnings now that was uh, in 2017 according to the American Gaming Association and it was a record year by the way a record year for the commercial casino industry in the United States now, think about that for a minute in comparison. Probably you say, why am I telling you about gambling? But anyway, we'll get to it in a second. In comparison, I want you to think about this. Now, think again, 460 commercial casinos, $40 billion in revenues. Pro football generated about $15 billion last year. Pro football. How big is pro football? Pro basketball or baseball reached... 10 billion for the first time last year. First time ever it reached that high. The NBA's 30 teams generated 7.4 billion last year. That was up 25% from the year before. See, the top three professional sports teams in the United States don't even come close to producing the revenue that gambling does each year. So here's what I want you to realize. Obviously, somebody's losing. Somebody's got to be losing. If casinos are paying out that kind of money, they got to be making a lot more. Can I tell you that the odds really aren't in your favor? <laughs> They're really not in your favor. I mean, somebody's losing. They're never in your favor when gambling. And may I tell you this, that the odds are even more stacked against you when it comes to living the Christian life. If you think that the odds are stacked against you at a casino, and they are, I promise you they're much more stacked against you in this thing we call the Christian life. You are guaranteed greater opposition, greater resistance to success in your Christian life than ever. I'm telling you that we have an enemy, and that enemy is relentless. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Bible says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. One of the most intriguing and yet, uh, and and interesting passages in the Bible. And yet, it's it's a very sobering passage. How is it interesting and intriguing, but it is sobering to think about. And I wonder sometimes if we don't kind of neglect this passage or we fail to remember the truth that's found in it. Notice what it says here, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. To that point, we could all say, well, amen, that makes sense to us. A lost person's not going to understand the word of God. A lost person's not going to get this thing called salvation. They may even lack the faith to even believe there's a God. That makes sense to us. But I want you to keep reading. And notice it says in verse 4, in whom the God of this world. And again, I think it's important to realize that it says God of this world. Now listen, there there is one true and living God, but there are many gods. Gods. And I'm talking about big G God versus the little G's. There's a lot of little G gods running around, but the Bible calls this particular character here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He talks about him as the God of this world. And the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. He has blinded them. 
lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You talk about the odds being stacked against people. Listen, the devil has the odds stacked. And those odds are stacked especially when it comes to the lost and even to the saved. Fortunately for us, we have someone on our side that's much stronger. We understand that. But still, don't think for a minute that everything's always in our favor. There are no doubt that he is opposing us every turn we take. So first of all, for the little story and the parallel, I believe, from this city to us is the odds are stacked against us. But not only that, but... I believe that when it talks about this poor wise man, I believe that we could all look at our own lives and say, you know what, as Christians, as believers, as children of God, we are poor wise men and poor wise women. Again, this city had neither soldiers nor any kind of arms to defend it, and yet they were standing against a mighty enemy. Fortunately, it wouldn't be conventional weaponry or swords, chariots or spears, that would ultimately save them. Matter of fact, it'd be unconventional uh, uh, warfare. It'd be wisdom that would do the trick. And you know what? Your deliverance, my deliverance, that deliverance did not come by physical warfare, spiritual warfare. I know that Christ died on a cross, but I'm going to tell you something. There's a battle raging all around us all the time, a spiritual warfare. And you know what? That is the warfare that made the difference in your life and in mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Turn there, would you please? I'm I'm convinced that probably uh, of passages in the Bible that are effective and very helpful in counseling, that this particular passage here would solve a uh, uh, almost... uh, I think that this passage could be used in almost 80 to 90% of every single situation I find myself running into. Uh, Any problem that you have, this one right here will go a long ways to help you. I mean a long ways. You, You couple this one with a few other verses along the way, and I'm telling you, it will transform and change your life. Notice it says here, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Again, identifying the the difference or the distinction between physical and spiritual warfare again. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We are poor wise men. (laughs) We have God and we have the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. We made a very wise decision one day to receive and accept Him. That's the best decision we've ever made in our lives. But there's still a warfare and there's still a battle raging and we need to continue to act wisely. I'm glad that God is in the business of using the poor in spirit. Look if you would in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, sometimes, again, we look to, uh, you know, uh, people, look at people and we say, now, now there's someone that God can use. I mean, they've got the look. They, they've, they've got the, uh, 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 the, 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 the 
the ability. I mean, they've got it all going. You know, they've got everything that's needed to really make an impact in the world we live in, to really make a difference in lives. I mean, God couldn't use me that way. I mean, I'm, I'm not really uh, that good at, uh, you know, presenting myself. That's why you have to come Saturday. And uh, I, I'm, just not, I, I'm just not as talented. I don't have the abilities of that person. I, I'm, I'm second class. I'm second rate. And you may not say that out loud, but you'll think it in your heart. And then you'll allow God, the God of this world, little G God, to use that in your life to drive you down, to push you down, to, to, to keep you out of the race, to keep you from being used of God effectively. In 1 Corinthians, though, I want to tell you that he tells us that you're exactly what he's looking for if you're not thinking too highly of yourself. Right. Notice, for ye see your calling, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, after the flesh, that's important. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited. That poor wise man, that, that fellow there behind the walls of that city, that city being besieged and that city being over, overwhelmed with, with the enemy, here they are in desperate shape. And no one had an answer, but that poor, that poor wise man did. He was the one that ultimately delivered the city. He was the reason that they escaped. You want to tell you something, you may not feel that you're very big or you're very powerful, that you have much to offer, but God uses people like poor little wise men, poor wise women. He uses those that seem insignificant to the world, those that have nothing to offer, in, to, to offer of themselves. And he says, I'm going to use that because if in using that, it'll be me that's magnified and glorified. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Boy, think about some of the greatest victories in history and how they've come to happen, how they took, how they took place. You know, they came really as a result of some unlikely sources. You think about little David. And again, when I say little, I don't know. I don't get the impression that he was six foot six, that's for sure. And he was just a young man at the time. But when he goes there to meet with his brothers and to take them some food, he runs into a giant. And there he hears him blaspheming the God of Israel. David, of all people, not even a soldier yet, not even tried and tested, never wore any armor, had never had a sword and a spear in his hand, so to speak, to speak of. No, he's he just a young boy out there taking care of his father's sheep. Who are you, David? You're a nobody. Just a poor wise man. Boy, God used him, didn't he? To bring one of the great victories of all time. I think of Daniel. When the king was preparing to destroy all the wise men of the kingdom. Daniel had been taken from his household and from his, his land and transported there to Babylon. And we find him now just literally existing and trying to do his best to remind and remember the things of God and try to encourage his, his brethren there. And, and next thing you know, 
They're ready to kill all the wise men. David steps up to the plate and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me, let me see what I can do. Of course, he saves everyone alive because God was in his corner. He's a poor wise man. I think of Esther. The edict would have legalized the annihilation of the Jewish people. And yet Esther was there for such a time as this. Poor little wise girl. Boy, she knew God and she knew what it took to make a difference. Gideon, hiding out, but we know how that ended. Before it's over with, he's a mighty man of valor. How'd that happen? God used Gideon, scared, afraid, and yet he's this tremendous general. 120 men, or excuse, excuse me, yeah, 120 men, let's see, I'm, I'm 300 men going against 120,000. Amazing to think about that. And yet a victory came. Joseph, who had ever thought? Here's Joseph. A Joseph, a slave. Joseph, a servant in a house. Joseph, in prison. Who's Joseph anyway? And yet he becomes ruler in Egypt and delivers God's people. And then there's Jesus. Born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, and yet he would triumph over the tomb. It seems like God's in the business of using the insignificant. That's what it seems like to me. And just like this poor wise man was there in that city just at the right time, I believe that we are in the right place at the right time. I don't think it's coincidence that you were born when you were born, that you've lived while you've lived, and that you have opportunity now to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not coincidental. The odds are against us. We are poor, wise men and women. Number three, we are destined for victory. Again, verse 15 it says, now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. He delivered the city. You know, we're kind of left to speculate as to how that transpired. I mean, how in the world was the victory secured? I mean, what did he do, right? I mean, they're building bulwarks outside. I mean, there's this great army that's attacking the city. The city's a small city. The king attacking's a great king. The army that's coming upon them is a great army, obviously. How in the world did he, this poor wise man, conceive a plan of victory? What, what, did, he, what did he say? What did he do? I, I, wish I, could, I wish I knew. But you know, just like they were victorious, so are we. 1 John 4, 4 says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Turn if you would to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Again, we're destined for victory. You say, well, I don't feel like a victor so far. I don't feel like I'm on the winning side at times. I feel like I'm on the other end of that. That's all right. Just hold on. You're, you're on the winning side. 
Don't worry about it. You're destined to victory. You're destined to win the race. Just hold on. Stay at it. Don't quit. Don't give up. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That's a question. You see that? Sometimes I wonder how we, we, when we look at that question, do we really look at it maybe from all perspectives? I mean, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Good question, right? Shall, tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And we look at that and we say to ourselves, okay, is a sword going to keep me from, from God? Is that, is that going to do it? Is, is, will nakedness or famine or persecution or distress do that? Will, will that separate me from God? Of course none of those things can separate me from God. But let me say this. The devil will use those things so that you separate yourself from God. Now, I understand that if you're saved and born again, that you're saved, secure, and forever and ever. I get all that. But I'm going to tell you something. We watch Christians all the time, don't we, that run into these kind of issues in their life, and they separate themselves from God and His people and the Word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us? Shall tribulation... Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. If those come into your life, my life, will it cause me to separate from him? Oh, I, I can't. His love will still be with me. I know that. But will my love be toward him? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I don't know about you, but verse 36 doesn't sound very fun. You know, we like those passages where we see that we're more than conquerors. And God will never leave us nor forsake us and all that. That's good. But in this case, the apostle's saying, nay, and he says, he says, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. He gets into that principality thing. Remember, it goes back to Ephesians chapter 6 now. Talking about Satan and his demonic hosts. I'm convinced, he says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor principality, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are destined for victory. I still love that passage over in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4. I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I find it very helpful, very encouraging. When he says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. You can rest assured, we're, we're on the winning side. You can rest assured that we are destined for victory. We are, that's all there is to it. I'm not saying that there's not going to be some tough times. I'm not saying that it's not going to be a rocky road ahead potentially. We're not saying there won't be some king come along like the God of this world 
and build some bulwarks outside of your home, outside of your family, outside of your relationship with the Lord and try to penetrate that relationship and try to wreck and ruin your home, your life, your marriage, your family, your, 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 your ministry. No, he's going to do that potentially, more than likely. But remember, we're poor, wise men and women. We've got God on our side. And we are destined for victory, even as this poor, wise man was. Finally, we are not remembered in this life. We are not remembered in this life. The poor, wise man, he kind of fell back into obscurity after the victory. Nobody remembered him, did they? Once the immediate danger had passed, well, thanks, but who are you again? I mean, his countrymen forgot who he was, and they forgot what he had done for them. You know, you can use the tools God's given you and you can be very wise in utilizing those tools. You can go out into this world and reach out to the world that's being bombarded by Satan and deliver them from the change and enslavement of sin. You can rescue them from the God of this world, so to speak, by sharing Christ with them and them being made free indeed by His presence and power in their lives. And yet often be unappreciated and even forgotten. Isn't it amazing that you could lead someone to Jesus Christ and deliver them from sin and the consequences of sin, hell itself, and yet they don't appreciate it? Or forget who you even are? That's hard to believe. I mean, nobody's writing an article in the newspaper about how much they appreciate your your willingness to go out and fight the battle on their behalf. Nobody's posting on uh, Facebook and talking about how, man, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and 10 years later, let's celebrate, let's have a, a big reunion, and thank God for that time when you came to my house 10 years ago. Let's do a memorial service for that person that passed 20 years ago, but I'm so grateful for what they did for me. The victory that I won as a result of that. That's not happening, is it? Primarily, for the most part, we're wise. We're just poor wise men. And if God gives us any wisdom to lead anyone to Christ, there's a good chance that in the end, those that we've led to Christ or possibly those that we've tried to help along the way will not really be as appreciative as we'd like to believe, and they may not even remember us. Now, let's see. I'm going to give you a word of warning here. Sometimes we remember too often what we do for people. And we let that get in our crawl. Well, I took groceries over to them. They never once said thank you to me. I bought their kids shoes. I never remember them writing me a note or a letter. And if they did, ever since, I don't even, they don't even act like I exist. We need to be careful that we don't remember everything we do for people to some degree. Sometimes we just need to do it for the Lord and not worry about it. 
try to forget almost about it because sometimes when we remember things and people aren't appreciative, it can start to make us a little bitter about what God's called us to do. What I want you to realize is that no matter who forgets you in this life, and they will forget you, many people will forget you. Matter of fact, 10 years after you're gone, 10 years after I'm gone, who are we kidding? Life goes on, right? Oh, my kids will remember me every once in a while. Maybe my grandkids, if they live long enough, if I live long enough for them to get to know me at that level. But, but, but outside of that, I mean, really, think about it. But here's what I want you to realize and never forget. Even though Solomon was being rather critical here, and, and, and to some degree, from the world's perspective, he's on the money. I want you to realize that God will never forget. He never forgets. And let me tell you something. The God of, the, of heaven is the, the, the very one we're going to be with for eternity. Now, and that's why it's so crazy, isn't it? I want to impress you. You want to impress me. We want to, I want to please you. You want to please me. I want to be accepted of you. You want to be accepted of me. And if we're not careful, we'll neglect God so that that can happen. So that those relationships that we have on earth will be good and solid and, and secure. We don't want to cause any waves among family or friends or others. We don't want to be separated in, from, by our standards or by our outlook or by our, our, our biblical ecclesiastical separation. We don't want in any way to cause any rift among family, friends, or even the culture in which we live. We want to fit in. We want to be pleasing in their sight. We want to be accepted by them. And you know what? All along for eternity we're going to be in His kingdom. I don't know about you, but we probably ought to work a little harder at wanting to be accepted by him. Wanting him to be pleased with us. And we ought to probably make that the priority. Because see, he's not going to forget anything. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58, the Bible says, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I always like that usually we, we cut off verses, but you, normally when we read a verse that's really a powerful verse, if we'd read the verse or two before it, we really get an understanding of that verse. And in this case, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore. And God's given us this great victory through Jesus Christ, therefore. Now he's not going to just tell us what we ought to be doing. He's going to tell us why we ought to do it. Can I tell you that one of the biggest problems that we have in life is getting to the place where we understand why we do what we do. Why do this? Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I go to work. Why? Because I have to go to work. I do this and I do that. And I go to church. Why? Because every good Christian is supposed to go to church. Why do you read your Bible? Well, because uh, the Bible says so. Why do you pray? Well, because good Christians pray, right? I'm telling you, we need to understand the why behind things. And in this case, he's telling us, he's saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
always busy in the things of God, always being planted securely, steadfast, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? (laughs) Because He's given you the victory through Jesus Christ. We're doing that because of something that was done, because of what He's already done for us. I don't need a reason to serve God. Really, when it's all said and done, all I need to remember is what He's done for me. That's reason enough. They're like, well, tell me how it's going to benefit me. Well, that's the big problem around here. You know, that's really not the motivation, although I do know that God says He's going to give us rewards, so in that sense, He is even appealing to that side of our flesh. But let me tell you this much. There's no other reason. We would need no other reason than the fact that he did for us what he did. Just because he did for me what he did, I ought to do everything I can to please him. Galatians 6, 9. Can you imagine if we really, that's the only reason we serve the Lord? Is because of what he's already done for us? Can you imagine how few personality conflicts we'd have? How little envy there'd be in the church? How little, how little abrasive, abrasive spirits there would be, how people would actually get along if their only real goal was just to honor Christ who saved their soul, forgave their sin, and placed them on a solid rock, put a new song in their mouth. It wasn't about having the opportunity to sing a song to everyone else. It was just that he put a new song in my mouth. I don't care if I get to sing a solo or not. It don't matter. I'm just going to please God and serve him. I'm doing it for him anyway. It has nothing to do with pleasing people. It's about just honoring the men who honored me with his salvation. Can you imagine how that would be? What sweet spirits we'd have around here. And I believe we have a good spirit around here. But I'm going to tell you something. We're still flesh and we're still human. May God help us not to buy into this worldly junk that we're only appreciated if we get to do this or we're chosen for that or we get this privilege or that privilege. We ought to just do what we do because of what he's already done for us. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. See, now there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor wise man. No man remembered him. You may feel that people don't recognize you or appreciate you the way you ought to be appreciated. Maybe you've come to the conclusion that you're not being remembered as you ought to be remembered. That your efforts are going unnoticed. I'm going to tell you something. God's noticing Oswald Chambers, and I'm going to close with this, he wrote, he wrote this, this statement. He, made this, he, he just wrote this, this portion. He said, Our battles are first won or lost in the secret places of our will in God's presence, never in full view of the world. The Spirit of God seizes me, and I am compelled to get alone with God and fight the battle before Him. Until I do this, I will lose every time. See, the battle may take one minute or one year, but that will depend on me, not God. However long it takes, I must wrestle with it alone before God, and I must resolve to go through the hell of renunciation and re- or rejection before Him. Nothing has any power over someone who has fought the battle before God and won there. I should never say, quote, I will wait until I get into difficult circumstances, and then I'll put God to the test. 
Trying to do that will not work. I must first get the issue settled between God and myself in the secret places of my soul where no one else can interfere. Then I can go ahead knowing with certainty that the battle is won. Lose it there and calamity, disaster and defeat before the world are as sure as the laws of God. The reason the battle is lost is that I fight it first in the external world. God alone, get alone with God. Do battle before him and settle the matter once and for all. In dealing with other people, our stance should always be to drive them toward making a decision of their will. That is how surrendering to God begins. Not often, but every once in a while, God brings us to a major turning point, a great crossroads in our life. From that point, we either go toward a more and more slow, excuse me, toward a more and more slow, lazy, and useless Christian life, or we become more and more on fire, giving our utmost for his highest, our best for his glory. Now, that's important. We come to a crossroad from time to time. And from that point, we either go toward a more and more slow, lazy, and useless Christian life, or we become more and more on fire, giving our utmost for his highest, our best for his glory. What he's saying is, we're going to come to some crossroads in life. And whether we do it God's way or we choose to neglect it, whether we obey the Lord and walk closer to him or whether we choose to reject him and move away, he said that'll determine how it affects your Christian life. And he says you're either going to become, by your decision, your choice, more and more slow, lazy, and useless, or you're going to be more on fire. That's a decision we make. But I'll tell you what, as poor wise men and women, out in the battle, it can be easy to get discouraged when we think, we begin to realize there's not, everyone's not remembering us the way we think they should. They're not showing us the kind of respect we think we deserve. I mean, they're not, they're not honestly even aware of everything that we do for them. I mean, where's the pat on the back? Where's the attaboy at? And sometimes the ministry becomes somewhat difficult for us. Because really, when it's all said and done, we're trying to get something out of it that God never intended us to. As much as God wants the ministry to be a blessing to us, it's really not for us. It's for them out there. And when we get in a battle in our lives, a spiritual battle, we need to go to God first. Don't try to fix the problem by addressing things physically. Let's address them in the presence of God. And then as God begins to give us leadership, let's choose to do it His way. And let's get fired up for Him. Not more and more distant, more and more lazy, more and more useless. He's remembering everything. And we'll stand before Him and He'll reward us accordingly. And there'll be a kingdom that awaits us, authority, rulership that awaits us based on our faithfulness now. This is simply a proving ground. May we pass the test with flying colors. And may God be confident to use us in the kingdom to come in a mighty way.
father we come to you we thank you